Um, so my name is Maria. I am a kind of like last year PhD student at Purdue. Um, I work mostly on natural language processing. I'm part of the NLP group here at Purdue. And um, my work kind of focuses on joining kind of like the neural models that everyone's kind of hype, hyping over recently with uh, traditional symbolic models of, of AI and knowledge, kind of like the intersection of these two things. I uh, work mostly on discourse, uh, but I do collaborate with Max and other people at Northeastern on kind of like using NLP for security applications and uh, net networking applications. But this work that I'm gonna present is on kind of like a general framework that we developed and it's kind of the crux of my dissertation. And uh, it's a bit about, you know, like joining these two ideas. So I'll go ahead and start. So natural language processing has been barely overcome by deep learning in the last few, uh, last decade or more. And the adoption of these methods has made, you know, like impressive and unquestionable advancements in the last decade. Uh, in uh, across all NLP tasks. These uh, approaches try to do this kind of like what we call end-to-end -end learning, where they try to map inputs and directly to outputs and think about kind of like a classifier. And uh, the idea here is that instead of, like before people would like really model, you know, the, the structure and the, and the features of what they want to do, in this case, they want to basically map the language to whatever output they want to do and let the neural architecture kind of take care of everything um, by embedding the structure of the language in a hidden high dimensional space. Uh, this example right here is kind of like a fun example from uh, one of this like large scale language models that has been released recently. And it's a kind of pretty impressive by responding to common sense questions. However, um, this method do come with some drawbacks. Uh, they can be really hard to train basically because of two reasons. They have tons of parameters. So if we look at uh, this graph down here, this is the number of parameters that they've grown for language models since the introduction of BERT. BERT was like a big uh, transformer model that Google released, uh, I guess it was 2019. And it was already huge. And uh, this has kind of like grown exponentially with time. So basically these are like millions and millions of parameters and to be able to train something like this, you need massive amounts of data, right? So we are talking about, you know, like this is our industrial scale language models that are trained, you know, by, by big names like Google, Microsoft and OpenAI and so on. And um, so this is not something that's accessible, you know, to everyone uh, to handle this amount of data. And then they have their downsides, right? So um, while it can be pretty impressive, uh, Recent work has shown that can, they can make inconsistent predictions, they make shallow associations, and they're essentially unexplainable black boxes, right? So they memorize this data, you know, to fine tune tons of parameters. And then there's like a big body of work now on just trying to like open this box and try to explain what's going on inside. On the other side of things, you know, before um, AI in general and also NLP, uh, used to use symbolic inference for uh, most applications. And this is usually a more natural way to express and reason over problems. And the go-to example, you know, it's like if you have a tons of data in a, in a knowledge base, then you can make sort of inferences or, or derive new knowledge from what you have there. So if you have, you know, the fact that all people are mortal and you know that Socrates is a person, then you can infer that Socrates is mortal. A lot of work has been done in the past on learning this model from data and dealing with uncertainty. And um, 
probabilistic graphical models are one of the um, one of the tools or one of the like modeling paradigms that was used a lot to model dependency between different decisions. So it's kind of like you know you have this factor graph where you can encode dependencies between different variables and then be able to model a lot of structure. And this was very uh, used a lot in NLP before. Uh, one good thing is that they're interpretable, right? So, you know, you model directly the dependencies between the different variables, so you know uh, what you're modeling and introducing domain knowledge is pretty easy, unlike in neural nets, right? With, where everything's kind of like a black box. On the downside, they are less expressive, uh, particularly when you're talking about something like language that is really high dimensional and noisy. If you were to like, create a symbol for every like word form or pairs of words, you know, triples of words, the more context that you want to introduce, this kind of like starts to explode. So it's not necessarily feasible. I see someone's trying to join. Um, that's easy. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, yeah. So um, why not, you know, like join the best of both worlds? So you can have the expressivity of neural networks, but the interpretability of symbolic methods. So this is kind of like what we look at. So if we look at a, a traditional neural model for language, you usually have like, you know, a, a snippet of text. In this case, this is a statement by uh, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris. And then you run this through a model and then you want to like draw a prediction from this. In this case, whether this argument was pro-choice or, or um, um, pro-life. When we talk about how to, you know, like introduce neural symbolic methods into problems like this, what we want to do is learn to decompose the decision into kind of things like can be symbolic abstractions of things that we want to model. So in this case, think about, you know, explicitly model who the speaker is, what a stance is, also the text, right? So you can have the argument made and maybe some entities that are being mentioned in, in the text. And then um, kind of that allows you to introduce, you know, symbolic relations between these things. So you can do something like, oh, the speaker is making this statement, this uh, statement uh, targets this entity, and this argument has this stance. And then this allows us to kind of like do some reasoning over the symbols that you can explicitly do if you were to just use kind of like an end-to-end -end model. Uh, this is on um, this space is pretty, you know, your standard symbolic models. There was a lot of work done on this kind of things before, but what, how to introduce, you know, neural components into this then what we think about is then use neural nets to learn to learn representations for the symbolic components of this thing. So you not only have a symbol of an entity in a relation, you're gonna have you know, an embedding for this uh, that is uh, learned using a neural architecture. So now you have a vector you know, that represents this that symbols. And then you can have both the neural representation and then the symbols to reason and, and do inferences over this. So this is kind of the uh, pitch for this. Uh, obviously, you know, this is a hot topic right now. Some people are looking into this, but usually when NLP, the NLP crowd looks at um, neural symbolic models, they tend to stay in the usual suspects. So things like, you know, knowledge bases uh, are a natural fit for a model like this, you know, because you already have the entities, you have the relations and then deriving, you know, rules to some induction, this kind of thing. It's uh, pretty, pretty common. And then traditionally from that flows, you know, keep question answering because you're then trying to do like this multi-hop reasoning over knowledge bases and then language grounding when they like ground things in vision, robots, this kind of things are, are pretty, you know, your usual suspects to do with something like that. But in our work, we try to motivate this uh, for this course problems. And when we talk about this course, we're typically talking about things where you know, you're looking beyond the sentence boundary. So you have one or multiple long texts. 
This can be posts, you know, documents, um, you know, tons and tons of things. Um, you also have uh, repeated concepts and talking points that you can model uh, and create symbolic abstractions over. So the example here is like where you have a debate between, you know, uh, Vice President uh, Harris and Vice President Pence, and they're, you know, making some uh, particular points that tend to be repeated. So when they talk about women, uh, poor women or women of color in the context of abortion, or when they talk about, you know, babies, the unborn in the context of abortion, these are things that keep coming up, you know, or things like Democrat, Republican, who these people are, what parties they belong to. These are kind of like things that um, come into play. And then we have structural dependencies between the different talking points, the different concepts, and uh, the broader context, right? So the way people construct arguments is something that, you know, exists, you know, the way you can kind of build up an argument is a very structured usually, or like turn-taking in conversations. These are all types of structure that you could model. And then the broader context of I say, right? So language doesn't occur in isolation. There's some something that goes beyond that that you could explicitly model. So who these people are, the party they belong to, um, their relations to other people, bills they sponsor, bills they co-sponsor with other people. Those are tons of things that you could uh, kind of consider when talking about this course. So the contribution of this paper that I'm, I'm presenting right now is a neural symbolic modeling tool um, that is declarative called DRAO that can do the following things. So integrate expressive textual representations. So, you know, take uh, all of these things down in like BERT and all these language models that are out there, you know, they work, they're expressive. Can we incorporate them, you know, easily? That's one thing that we do. The other is support structure prediction across long text. So when we talk about structure prediction, we're saying that instead of predicting just a single label for a problem, you're predicting a structure. So could it be, you know, like a sequence or, or a tree, you know, this, this kind of uh, dependencies. And then combine several modalities and the representations. When we talk about modalities, these are just different types of inputs. So text and images could be two types of modalities, text and social uh, information could be two types of modal modalities. And then uh, produce models that are more explainable than end-to-end -end models, and that you can explicitly leverage domain knowledge. So for this, then we present the rail. It's a general purpose declarative framework. And the, what we can do here is specify complex NLP tasks by breaking down the problem into domain-specific atomic components. So think about the example that I gave you of the, you know, the speaker, the entities, the argument, the stances. So these are could be atomic components. They could also be things like just as words, sentences, paragraphs. It depends on the level of abstraction that you would like to work with. And then you can also specify dependencies between them, their properties, and other contextualizing information. So is this idea of creating this relations between entities and then rules over these relations. Um, and then at the same time, you can define any neural architecture to embed these concepts in these relations. And uh, we provide this using, you know, you can use PyTorch, which is the, you know, like a common um, deep learning framework that everyone uses on, on Python. And then you can just kind of like plug in any type of architecture. And now you have two ways of representing dependencies in your problem over the output variables, like symbolic models do and then over the neural representation in a shared embedding space. And I'll get into what this means. Uh, kind of like the broad overview of the rail before I go into the specifics. So you, you have an input, a model that you want to, uh, sorry, uh, a domain that you want to model. In this case, well, we'll go back to uh, statements and made in debates by politicians. And then you can kind of like extract or define entities and relations between them 
to learn representations for the symbols. So you can learn embeddings for, you know, the entities that you care about, stances, the, the speakers, the text, um, and then all the other things like voters, parties, and then relations between them. So now you have kind of like this shared distributed space uh, where you learn representations for these things. And then you can combine these uh, embeddings uh, in neural scarring functions to learn weights for uh, kind of these rules that you can define and then, you know, kind of like perform um, kind of like a symbolic in weighted symbolic inference where you have, you know, kind of like weighted rules that um, define a particular structure problem. This is kind of like the, the broad view and uh, going a bit, oh, sorry, I missed the key component that is that, you know, once you have uh, this weights, then you can keep training your model, both by learning better weights for your rules and by kind of updating the internal representation of these entities. Obviously, you know, as a machine learning models go, you usually have ground this in data, you have some learning training data that you can use to kind of refine your model. So this is kind of what DREAL does. So we have a, a little language that you can use uh, and a grammar to express problems. So you can define entities, uh, relations and rules. Uh, rules are written in kind of like causal form. So you have a conjunction of predicates and implication in a single head predicate. And this way you can define dependencies in your problem. So in this case, we were modeling um, a debate. So we have, you know, you, we call it user. It's a user that comes into an online debate and debates something, T is the topic, and agreement are, is agreement between uh, users and text, users and users. And then we also have other users that come and cast votes for the people that they agree with, think of this like a like on Facebook, more or less. And then you can define dependencies, for example. So if a, if a user agrees with a topic and a, a, another user votes for that person, then that person agrees with that voter, right? So you can uh, kind of define these dependencies. So you have an input layer, right? That is exactly these entities and these relations. And let's say some arbitrary input representation for them. This can be, you know, any type of feature that you would like to consider. Uh, it can be, you know, word embeddings that were pre-trained in some other model, you know, anything goes. Then you can, uh, we have what we call this like rel nets or the shared embedding space where you define kind of like modular encoders using neural nets for this uh, different components. So you have a way like a user or a text encoder that you can reuse and then relation specific encoders. The, the reason this is shared is because the same entities and the same relations are gonna be used by multiple rules, right? So the idea here is that you reuse the same parameters every time uh, a user or a relation appears in the problem. So this way you learn kind of like a global representation for users, tags, or whatever entities you're representing. Then we have the rule layer, which is just another scoring function on top of uh, the embeddings of entities and relations to derive the weights that um, you're gonna have for each rule. So in the end, you're gonna learn a weight for each of these rules. And what this does is defines a, a factor graph uh, of dependencies where each, um, each rule defines kind of a dependency between the open decisions. So for example, in the rule below, the dependency between agreement and, and voting could be one of these factors and this is gonna have an associated weight to it. So the task that we have is, you know, learning the weights that satisfy our dependencies and better kind of like learns to predict the, the data or domain that we have. So to kind of formalize uh, the DRAIL program, rule groundings, uh, as I told you, rules are 
basically this kind of like implication style rules where you have a conjunction implying uh, a single head predicate. So you can rewrite this as linear inequalities corresponding to their disjunctive form. And then you can easily turn this into a linear program that you can uh, kind of solve. Uh, this has, you know, like performance considerations because this is uh, an NPR problem, right? It depends on the type of dependencies that you will have. It'll be uh, intractable. But there are tons of uh, relaxations or um, kind of approximations that can be used to approximate this um, model. And then each rule grounding defines a potential uh, that you add to the to the linear program. And we also provide the um, option to provide what we call hard constraints, which are going to be unweighted rules that have, always have to be satisfied no matter what. So then in the end, uh, you can define a, a map inference problem over the set of potential and constraints. And your task is to you know, maximize uh, this function, right? To get to learn the weights for, for all your rules. So the neural components, um, kind of like formalizing that is that each weight of the rule uh, is gonna be given by a scoring function that is basically a neural net. Uh, and you have you know, parameters uh, for each neural component, so, sorry, for each rule template. So each rule basically is tied to a neural net, and then that is decomposed on uh, kind of like relation-specific and entity-specific encoders that are then reused by all rules. So this is um, kind of similar to other ideas that are common in the machine learning community, like uh, modular architectures or multitask learning, where you kind of learn uh, to learn parameters across multiple different decisions. Uh, in this case, we can think of the different decisions that being the different rules. The main difference here is that now you're going to have kind of like a, an inference procedure that combines all rules, considers all dependencies and constraints, and then backpropagates back to the to the neural components. So you learn kind of a representation that's kind of constrained, right, according to the type of model that you learn. So the goal of this is to capture properties that are unique to their types, you know, for, for the different entities and relations, and then relational patterns that learn to contextualize these entities. So uh, we make the distinction between entities that are raw or symbolic. So you can have, you know, an entity being a sentence or a document or a paragraph. So that's going to be, you know, associated to some raw input representation, like just the text. It can be a user with some like features that you would like to define in a, in a profile and so on or they're strictly like symbolic entities, like an ideology that you're just gonna learn a particular representation for. And um, by doing this, we are gonna support this type of operations to move between symbolic and, and uh, embedded or raw information. We call this kind of like embed symbol explain data to align the representations between uh, symbolic and raw entities. So you can, per, for example, push the representation of a text closer to an, um, a symbol that defines it. So let's say I want the embedding of the ideology, liberal or, or conservative, to be close in the embedding space to statements that are made either by you know, Republicans or Democrats and so on. So this way you learn representations that kind of inform each other. Uh, and then in the symbolic line, we have this translate correlate, which is basically aligned representations of pairs of either symbolic or raw entities. So let's say, you know, aligning the pro-choice um, embedding with the liberal embedding, for example. Um, that's one thing that you can do there. 
So to talk a bit more about this, um, this is kind of what we ask when we talk about this representation learning objective. So embed symbol is, you know, can we learn a meaningful embedding for a symbol? like liberal conservative, explain data is to map raw textual statement, statements, for example, to meaningful symbols. So statement to ideology, translate is represent different modalities in the same embedding space. So two things that are attributed like a statement and a user, and then correlate, as I mentioned before, something like ideology and stance would be a, an example. So learning um, is done. This is a kind of a, there's nothing new you know, in, the, in the learning component of this. We borrow ideas from uh, what uh, is a structure prediction or structure learning in, in NLP or in machine learning, which is, you know, you're, you're instead of learning a single um, output, you're learning, you know, all of these rules and their dependencies. So you have, you know, uh, all of the rules tied to a particular neural net. You derive all the scores. Then you wrap the map inference procedure to find the best assignment. Then you have, you know, your global structure given by your training data you derive a, a loss function between the two of them and then you back propagate back to everything. So there are tons of loss functions that can be used for this in the literature. Um, we've experimented with a few in the paper uh, and they'll have you know, this pro and cons depending on how hard it is to approximate you know, this type of things because depending on what your structure is, this can be untractable. One that we worked with is this structure hinge less, which is pretty simple. In the end, this is just, uh, the difference between the goal structure, which is the structure given by your training data, and the score um, from your like highest performing uh, current model given by your current parameters, which is just the prediction that you have from your current model after running the inference. So, and then you know adding some Hamming loss to add some sort of a margin. And Hamming loss is basically just the difference between the gold uh, structure and the predicted structure usually some one whenever there's a match and zero when there's not. So this gives you kind of like a, an augmented loss. This is, loss is obviously gonna be zero when the goal structure and the, and the prediction is the same. So then you don't need to know anything if you make perfect predictions, but if not, then this is gonna grow, right? So the, the more different they are, the, the higher your loss is gonna be. And then the objective is to bring this loss down. So learn parameters such that this loss comes down. Um, so that's kind of a, what it, what the framework does and how, how we set it up. And then I'm going to show one evaluation. Uh, we've done a tons of this for this framework, different domains in the paper. We have three, but I'm just going to walk you through one. Uh, so this is a, a task that we call open domain sense prediction. So basically you have a discussion, uh, think about a, de a debate, a debate online. So it could be on Facebook and Twitter. So someone posts kind of like a topic. In this case, is like those private gun ownership deter crime. That's the, the topic. And then people come and comment on it. And people jump in, they disagree or agree with each other. And the task is to predict whether each of these texts um, agrees or disagrees with the, the, main the main question being posted. So um, we turn it into a structured prediction task by predicting uh, both this, the stance of the topic, of the post with respect to the topic. And then also the agreement disagreement between consecutive posts, right? So it's likely that people are going to disagree, uh, but because you know people tend to only jump in when they want to disagree. But we want to kind of like predict this model. So sometimes you have someone kind of like backing up someone else. So we have um, all of these different decisions, and then 
they have to be consistent, right? So if you're predicting that they're both going to be against the topic, then uh, and they're consecutive, then they both have to agree. So these are kind of like the dependencies that come into play when doing something like this. Uh, In Maria, addition, just to, just to clarify yeah. that they agree versus yeah. disagree, it's like not that one comment disagrees with the other comment, but that one mm -hmm. comment agrees with the central thesis and the other comment disagrees with the central thesis, right? So it, with the central thesis is what we call pro and con. And oh, uh, agree okay. and disagree, we talk about consecutive posts. So, uh, so if they I see. do agree with, yeah. So if they agree with each other, then they both have to be con, for example. I see. So you're labeling like the nodes and the edges. And the edges, correct. Yeah, so in the end, it's a, okay. it's, a true, it's a true prediction problem. Um, that's why we call it uh, structured. And in addition to that, we are going to talk about, you know, we talk a lot about the context, broader context. So we are also going to model the users. Uh, and not just the text. So the users are have some attributes, they have some profile information that we're gonna consider. And they, they also have relations between each other, right? So is this kind of vote information that I talked to you about? So people come and maybe they don't participate in the debate, they don't say anything, but they cast a like to some, to some posts. And then we can also derive inferences from that. So this is the task. And the only thing we know is the topic, the posts, the users, and we are gonna assume that we know the structure of the tree. So we know who responds to who, but we don't know whether they agree or disagree. So the evaluation plan here is to compare to other modeling strategies. Um, one that we talk about is local versus global. So whether you consider the dependencies or not, right? So if you just do this like predictions separately, uh, or you, you know, kind of like consider them together and, and consider the dependencies and the constraints. Then we're going to evaluate uh, RELnets. If you remember, this is this kind of like relational embedding space that I talked about. So this idea of reusing parameters for the same types of entities and relations across different rules. And then we're going to do some qualitative evaluation on the representation learning and interpretability of our learned model. And then we're going to compare to other methods. One is just end-to-end -end neural nets. So this is just, you know, kind of input, neural net output. Um, relational embedding methods are methods that kind of do the rel net portion of it, but they don't do the structure inference portion of things. So they try to learn, you know, entity and relation embeddings that are shared, but they don't really enforce consistency or perform any type of symbolic inference. And then we're gonna compare to other probabilistic logic frameworks. Um, both purely symbolic, so people that you know just live in the frameworks that live in symbolic land and don't really learn any neural nets or any embeddings, and then other neural symbolic uh, frameworks out there. Um, but the main drawback between these methods that are out there is that they do not provide a way to update the base classifier or the base representations. So this is what we kind of bring to the table. Um, this is kind of the, the general results that we have. So just to kind of parse this, post user and voter is the prediction of um, post is going to predict whether a post agrees or doesn't agree with the, the main thesis. So the, the pro-con stance at the, at the post level. Then we predict that at the user level as well. And then we're also gonna measure whether we can predict or the voting relations. So whether two people are likely to agree with each other. And then um, this 
numbers are F1 score. So it's just kind of uh, to account for imbalances in the data, this metric kind of um, does that so that either if, if everything is, if you have way more people agreeing than disagreeing, then you're not going to be biased by the metric. And then this yellow part, these are just independent neural nets. So just, you know, text neural net to output or use of neural net to output. Uh, so no dependencies, no shared representations. Then these uh, green ones are these relational embedding methods. We use three really popular ones. Um, they learn uh, entity and relation embeddings. And then the blue ones are probabilistic logics. PSL is a purely symbolic one. So it's very similar to ours, but they only learn one weight per rule and they don't have neural nets to learn that or any representation for entities and relations. And then TensorLog is another probabilistic logic. They are, all, are also a neural symbolic model, but instead of putting the neural part into learning to represent entities and relations, what they do is essentially try to frame the inference as a differentiable operation and then use a neural net to learn it. But everything, <laughs> sorry, all the representations are symbolic. And then this uh, orange ones is our framework. Uh, we have three versions. One is joint inference. This means, uh, sorry, I got. <laughs> this means that the symbolic inference is done only at prediction time and not during learning. So basically you just learn independent nets like this yellow one, and then just combine them at prediction time with inference. The global one is the method that does do the inference, derive the structure laws and back propagates back to everything. And then the RELNETS version is the one that also shares parameters across, you know, like represent the entities and relations in the in all the rules using the same parameters. So the trend is kind of what you would expect. So symbolic inference is the winner. So that's why blue is where better than green. Uh, so representing dependencies is what gives you the most edge. But then by combining, you know, also learning to represent things in an embedding space, you can, uh, gains in performance here. Uh, the performance seems low in, in NLP land. This is pretty huge uh, when you move, you know, kind of like a little bit above. These are all statistically significant. We did some tests, so we can kind of like be sure that there was some type of improvement. So apart from that, uh, we wanted to, you know, we have all these claims of this being oh, more explainable, more interpretable and so on. So we wanted to see whether that was true. So uh, we wanted to evaluate our representations as a way to look under the hood. So we're gonna go back to this kind of operators that I talk about moving between you know, uh, raw and, and symbolic uh, representations um, by mapping statements to meaningful symbols or learning meaningful embeddings for symbols. So this is kind of the test that we do. So we took statements made by um, people in the debates in the context of guns. And we tried to look at the symbols that had the highest scores. In this case, this symbol was an ideology. So we could uh, kind of recover things like statements where we talk about guns, gun laws not, you know, not being good for anything, being ineffective and shouldn't be passed because of the right to bear arms, had higher scoring symbols for, uh, sorry, high, higher scoring uh, or higher scoring for right-leaning symbols like conservative um, or moderate-leaning conservative. And then things where you talk about gun control being good for society or some type of gun control being used had higher um, scores for moderate and left symbols. 
Um, and then we also looked at the embedding of symbols themselves. So if you remember, we're gonna learn a distributive representation for symbols as well. So we have a vector for the symbol liberal, we have a vector for the symbol conservative, and then we have a vector for statements made in text. And what we do is try to see which statements are closest to the ideologies in this space by using something like, I don't know, like cosine similarity or something like that over these vectors. And we could recover interesting things, for example, statements uh, closest to the uh, idea, the liberal symbol in the context of LGBT issues where supportive statements, uh, where legality was emphasized. Whereas for the conservative symbol, we found both supportive and opposing statements, but uh, in most cases, morality was emphasized. So things about, you know, things being good or bad, moral or immoral, taboo or sin, were like closer to conservative than they were to liberal. So now this is kind of cool, you know, in, in having a model like this, now you have some symbols, you have not only have the weights that you have for each role, but now you also have some um, distributed representation for all the elements in your, in your program. So you have you know, vectors for text, vector for users, vector for all the symbols that introduce like ideology, state, stances and so on. And now you can see whether you learn anything meaningful. And this is a way to kind of see what your model is learning. So disclaimer, this doesn't necessarily need to be okay. Um, you know, it's like, it's just basically a way to see what the model learned. And in some cases you can kind of capture the, see the patterns that are being captured. And it's uh, better than just having kind of just the output um, and then try to know whatever is going on under the hood in your neural net. Then we took it a step further and see if this kind of like would translate to what we call out of domain data. So the previous test was on text in the same debates that we learned over, right? So we just took some debates that we were uh, training on and then took some of the portion of the test set and try to look at. But then uh, the, 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 this concepts or this representation generalized. So what we did was downloaded statements by three prominent politicians from um, uh, some web page called On the Issues. So we downloaded statements from Sanders, Biden, and Trump. And then we tried to score them using our model. And this is on the, on the left-hand side, you can see kind of like the aggregate results. So while they, there is some error and some variance, on the aggregate level, we were able to kind of recover this kind of like political spectrum. So you have Sanders uh, leaning mostly left, Trump leaning mostly right and Biden leaning left, but somewhere in the middle. So you can kind of recover kind of the spectrum that you would assume. And on the right, we have some examples of the issue statement and label that we were able to recover using our model. And one interesting thing was, for example, in the cases where the statement prediction wouldn't necessarily align with what you would expect from the politician. In some cases, we thought by looking, evaluating this, that the model was actually correct. So for example, you have in cases of Trump, you know, a statement that he made prior to running for office, where he was, you know, talking about being pro-life, uh, you know, uh, sorry, that's not the one, talking about uh, being like uh, pro-choice pro and talking about Planned Parenthood doing great work in women's health. And we were able to, you know, like classify that as left, which makes kind of sense. Uh, based on like the broader views of the parties. So, you know, there's some noise, but there's also some kind of like nuance being captured into the model. 
So uh, this is kind of what I have for this talk. So to summarize, we motivated a neural symbolic approach for natural language tasks involving long text and contextualizing information. Uh, we introduced a general framework to support that and obtain models that are easy to interpret and expand. So thanks everyone. And yeah, I'm happy to hear what you have to say. Awesome, thank you very much, Marina. That was terrific. Um, uh, why don't I start us off with a question and then uh, mm -hmm. Uh, anybody else who has questions, please just unmute yourselves and, and ask, and we'll do our best not to uh, Zoom trod all over each other. Um, so this last point is kind of interesting at a philosophical level about the NLP maybe being better than our own intuition at classifying mm -hmm. the spectrum of, of beliefs. Um, are there maybe more technical applications uh, where this would, be, would, would yield, uh, I don't know, interesting statements about differing views that are not mm -hmm. I mean, politics are one thing, but are there like differing views on technical subjects that um, that you can apply this type of technique to? I think this technique is kind of suitable to anything where you have you want to model kind of concepts or re repeating things and structure and dependencies. So you know, it's like uh, you know, things that well, things that we work on are, are a good candidate as well, right? So you have mm -hmm. uh, kind of like a structure that when we're predicting this type of trigger constraint kind of structure to to tie these dependencies are, are, are true. Um, everyone's, you know, working a lot on the political domain is a kind of like what people are into right now. But uh, there's this kind of uh, things are also used on um, a lot of like what they call medical NLP. So when they have, uh, you know, papers or are kind of like documentation talking about how like some drug is working, how it's effective, what things kind of like interact with each other. Um, I think these are also suitable techniques. Very cool. Thanks. I'll uh, open the floor. Alex, have you got a question? So how good is the stance prediction at uncovering like hidden variables, uh, hidden mm -hmm. constants, I guess you'd say, but unstated uh, implicit beliefs? Yeah. Uh, yeah, you, you can. Uh, you can also explicitly model those if, if you wanted to. So um, let's say, I mean, they're not necessarily going to capture what you want them to capture, but uh, you can, this, this uh, symbols or these relations don't necessarily need to be observed or, or learned from data. You could have like a, a latent uh, kind of like variable that you're expecting there. So I'm, I have this predicate, it has like, I don't know, 10 possible um, assignments, and then you're gonna map a, a dependency between that and and a prediction. So you could, you know, like map statement to latent variable, latent variable to stance, and then I just kind of like let the model learn the assignment, and then look back and see what kind of things you're capturing in each group. So it's kind of like a, a proxy for like a clustering style technique that is more structured because then you can define constraints over those, um, and then you can kind of recover hidden information. Uh, it's a, the thing with like this type of models is that so you might have some intuition of what you're going to capture, but that doesn't necessarily translate. I think that's when like being able to constrain it comes into play because you can then say, you know, you have some domain knowledge about it. So you can say things like, oh, if they're talking about a particular entity in like a bad light or in a good light, you can kind of embed this knowledge into it. But then there's this like, game of like, you know, like how much bias, you know, you put into the model. Uh, you know, it's never going to be perfect. I don't think where you're modeling this like type of 
complex domains, but you know, there's there's definitely something that you can you can uh, capture there. Uh, we, yeah, we are actually working on that right now. So in this paper, everything was learned from data, but our next step is to actually model uh, hidden non-observed variables and then try to see what we can recover from that. That is like one direction that we're looking at. But you still have to like almost manually know what to look for there. It sounds like. Well, you know, uh, like the main specific stuff. Yeah, if you want to constrain it, then yes. But if not, you can just say, oh, I just map this statement to a variable. The only thing you need to know is how many instances of that you want, right? So if you want, you can model the number of hidden variables, but if they're discrete, then you do need to know the number. But other than that, no. And then you can play with it, right? So you can put it as like two and then expand to 15, you know, depending on how many you want to capture. But then you don't really need to constrain it. And then you can kind of like just see what comes up by your model. But constraining it would help you, you know, introduce bias if you do want to. So because sometimes I think there are two types of hidden information, right? The one that you just want to discover, you don't know what it, what it's there. And then there's the ones that you know are there, but you don't have supervision for them. So it's like, oh, I know this, this is something that I want to capture, but I don't know, you know, I don't have data to learn it from. So then you can kind of bias your model with constraints to recover that. I don't know if that answers your question at all, but. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. Uh, answers to that there isn't a simple answer, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty, I think, hard, right? Because you, you can never model everything, especially when you're talking about kind of like just like abstract concepts. Uh, one thing that we've looked at is into adding symbols for kind of like psychological or political theories that are out there. So things like moral foundations, for example. So, oh, I'm going to try to model morality, fairness, you know, uh, this kind of type of things, and then kind of write these rules um, these are weighted rules, right? So you, they don't need to be uh, always hold true. So you can recover, for example, oh, when people talk about morality in the context of abortion, are they likely to be uh, Republican or liberal? This kind of things you can try to recover. Um, and so capture some uncertainty on them. Can you make structural comparisons of how different types of people argue? Like people on the left argue using one type of kind of symbolic structure of argument and people on the right have a different structure to the way they think or something like that. That'd be really cool, actually. Uh, I think that's a, something to consider. So it's like how people construct their arguments. Do they vary across like political? Yeah, because uh, you already I'm kind I'm of sure have they graphs, do. <laughs> right? yeah. Like you, you yeah. showed us you're making these, you're guessing these weighted graphs of, of yeah. argument, which makes me want to compare graphs. Yeah, I think that'd be interesting to know. And actually, that can also not only across political lines, but like maybe across platforms, right? So the way a politician is going to talk is not the same as like some influencer on Twitter, you know, trying to sell you some idea. This can, I think this might be interesting to capture. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, good idea. <laughs> uh, I've got a quick question about... Yeah how the text is interpreted by the system. So I guess, is it, um, would you imagine that it could be swayed if you're mm -hmm. comparing discourse from different platforms? So to give an example of this, you would imagine that if someone is talking in a debate, mm -hmm. the grammar of their speech is not going to actually be correct, even if their argument is perfectly coherent. But if you compare that to something like a written form where it's gonna be complete sentences, periods, commas, all in the right place, mm -hmm you find that the system is influenced by the actual grammatical structure of the text that it's fed into? 
Yeah, this is very prevalent in NLP. So usually things don't translate well. So if you have something trained on news data, then it doesn't work on, on social nets. Or if you have something learned on news articles, then it doesn't work in technical documentation. So that this is uh, prevalent and it's going to happen. Um, in this case, uh, you can use kind of symbols. If you have enough like samples from different types of sources, then you can use symbols to kind of ground that. So if I have samples from like, you know, right-leaning arguments from news sources, but I also have samples from right-leaning arguments from, you know, Twitter, Facebook, uh, whatever, Reddit, then you can maybe learn to generalize better and kind of omit the stylistic differences. But if you don't account for it, that definitely is going to show up. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Yeah, no problem. Uh, another follow-up. Do you have any hypotheses on why voting seems to be so much noisier than argumentation predictively yeah like small network effects yeah. or it's a pretty small network so when we look at voting we look at just like networks inside a particular debate so you're just going to have a handful of votes um and it doesn't really it's like a hard problem i think if we had like more samples or if you were to model maybe other types of relations there to to like run friendships in like the friendship graph of the social net and then tie right, that to voting system. yeah that might help you there, um, but yeah, it was a, it was pretty small in in each, and we treated it differently. So we didn't connect different um, debates to other debates, which is something you could do. We model each debate in isolation, uh, so that could also make it harder. They're also like I looked at the data, and some things are pretty noisy, right? So I think some people also like troll around. And they are going to vote for something that doesn't really align with the things they're saying in other places or what they have in their profiles. So that does happen. <laughs> but an aggregate, but, yeah. yeah speaking of that, how do you account for you know disingenuity on the textual yeah. level? We don't, but that's a really good thing that you should like take into consideration if you were to deploy this anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Alex, the people are somebody, trying to hack the system. <laughs> somebody posted in the Tucson. Somebody posted in the Tucson subreddit recently, very earnestly asking what the best um, romantic dinner is in Tucson. And I said, the EG's parking lot. <laughs> I said yeah. the EG's parking lot. So <laughs> the somebody who's trolling would be me. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's the thing. You could probably, you know, add that to a user vector at some level. Yeah, and, and you yeah, can, yeah. You can, you can try to model that for sure. And you have also kind of like this devil advocates people. So you're going to have someone that, oh, in their profile, they're like completely Republican or completely liberal. And then they want to argue the complete opposite view. Uh, so that's something that definitely does show up in this type of, this was like a, this is, this, this domain was some webpage called debate.org that we use. And they have this kind of like structure way of creating arguments. So they have like this rounds and two people debate. And even in that space, you know, people troll around. And yeah, uh, you, you, you'd be surprised. I mean, like, I was surprised that people even engage in this type of things. It's like, they just go online to debate some topic, but they do. <laughs> can, can you uh, see the difference? Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Neha. I'm oh, sorry, uh, I had more of a technical question. So mm. when you find um, the sentence that's closest, uh, closest to a concept, mm. do you look over the set of all possible sentences in your database and you look over all the vector yeah. constructions? Yeah, so okay. that one was kind of like a rank. So we like just showed you the top ones. Uh -huh. And how do you construct the vector for the sentence embedding? Is it based yeah. on the words themselves? 
Uh, yeah, so that's kind of like, you know, in this model, uh, kind of you have a neural net that represents each of these entities and relations. So uh -huh. for like the text, we have a specific neural net there. We use the bird, which is a transforming model. So a transforming model uh, kind of like uses the sequences, the sequence of all the words, uh -huh. and then they create kind of like all possible um they have like a, what they call an attention layer. And uh -huh. so they look at all possible mappings and then they have like some self assignments there. So the, mm -hmm. the idea here is that, you know, it's kind of like an abstraction. You can plug in your, your favorite neural representation there um, mm -hmm. and kind of play with that. Uh, we use kind of a, what was best performing right now. Yeah, so yeah, based on the sentences, based on the, and uh, BERT is contextualized. So you're not gonna have a single embedding for each word the embedding for each word is going to be dependent on the words that are nearby. So, you know, the bank is going to look different, whether it has like money things around it or, um, you know, the okay. park and the, you're sitting on a bench kind of thing. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Maria, do you think you would get very different results if you did this in other languages like Spanish or Chinese? And if so, how would it be different? Yeah, I think so, uh, particularly because, you know, the underlying models that we use to kind of build these building blocks uh, were built around English, so they're better on English, so I expect the performance to be worse um, just because of that, but they, you know, if you do, like, find some good model or, or something, uh, they're usually kind of uh, other, I don't, I don't know about Chinese, I can't speak to it, but in Spanish, you know, they're other other issues that are going to come out with the way people construct arguments is different you know we might need to like kind of like have a specific model and then also um if you're modeling politics then you gotta kind of have the model the politics that are local to each particular discussion right so in this case we were using liberal conservative symbols but that might not translate necessarily you know to china right or, or they mean yeah. different things yeah, yeah. they mean completely different things so you might need to have your own left-right models for each um, kind of region because they're, they're going to be different. But that'd be pretty interesting, you know, to see, kind of see how, how that moves. I'm more thinking of in Spanish, like I'm reading this book 2663 or something like that. And um, uh, it just seems like in Spanish, like people uh, just like write a whole book with no periods and they put the periods in wherever the fuck they feel like it after the fact. <laughs> and they have like a budget of 10 periods for the whole book, as far as I can tell. It's just astonishing. And uh, I've had this experience with other authors in Spanish before too, that uh, the, the, the end of the sentence is a purely optional thing, yeah. but it's also implied if you don't put it there. And it seems like that would make it pretty hard because you'd have to like have some way to figure out what are actually concrete thoughts that are yeah i think par par partitioning is probably harder yeah and i mean yeah. that's funny right because it happens to us when we first start learning english and we write we write this like huge paragraph with not like uh separation exactly and then you need to learn to break down the sentences so that's that common mistake yeah i think that probably you need um kind of like a good partitioning mechanism there to we do it at the post level, uh, so we don't really deal with that very much. But if you were doing it at the sentence level or like at the statement level, then that might be. Yeah, I feel like the author just kind of did the salt bay thing with periods. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it <laughs> makes sense to me, but you know, I can understand that it doesn't make sense to people. <laughs> yeah, and the comments, yeah, it, it's really it, it's really different, I think. Uh, and Spanish also kind of like you say more, you just talk more to make the same point, right? Right. Yeah. 
yeah, no, definitely. And I languages like Chinese or Japanese, then they have an additional uh, layer of um, complexity because the symbols are very rich in semantic knowledge, right? So it's not necessarily just the word form, but you also like the symbol, you know, it's the symbol of water combined with something else. It's like a different, completely different challenges in LP when dealing with those type of languages. Sure. I feel like if you could train PyTorch from the ground up, uh, German would probably be the best implementation language for it, just because it's so compositional <laughs> yeah. and regular. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, you got this like composed uh, words are pretty awesome. Oh, we've got Alberto. Look at that. <laughs> um, yeah. No, definitely. Um, and that's like, a, a, it's, a trending topic right now, right? Because most of the advances the field has made are very English centric. Um, so there's a lot of kind of like recent interest into making that more accessible to other languages. So for inference-based approaches, did you ever have issues with like applying too much consistency? Because, you know, whatever the horizon effect of yeah. your model is, it's probably actually better than it is for human thinkers. Yeah, it does happen. Um, we kind of work in this uh, land where like structure helps us, but that might not necessarily always be the case. So you do have cases like we were working on a, on a problem where we were kind of like modeling this like framing devices and, and moral foundations. And we wrote these constraints to be like, oh, the, this type of framing devices go with this type of moral foundations and they have to go together. And we were expecting that to be like, oh, this is going to improve this model so much. And it totally broke our performance. So yeah, sometimes things that you'd expect if you get like try to enforce them too hard then they, they don't. Um, the good thing about framework like this is like, it lets you kind of play around with uh, the dependencies that you would like to represent. So you can kind of like, add and remove as it, as it works best. And could as I see reverse, this like, yeah. Could, could you reverse engineer the moral foundations from the arguments that somebody makes in yeah, automated you fashion? Totally, you can totally can, I think, yeah. And they're very tied to stance, at least in like highly polarized topics. Maybe if you were to look at topics where, I don't know if there are any non-polarized topics like recently in American politics, but if you can find one, then that might not necessarily translate. Uh, we were trying to look in for uh, examples of something like that to, to demo something. So if you can think, if any of you have ideas of something that might not be too polarized, then that'd be a... I mean, you could do academics, right? Like yeah. you could look at some yeah. academic topic that's completely apolitical, like uh, some academic debate where people yeah. Yeah, are kind of be. open to both things. Yeah, I, I don't know. really like... boring how much moral foundations like play into something like that, not necessarily. Um, maybe if you're talking about like academic integrity or something like that. I'm, I'm thinking of like a comparison yeah. between two equally boring, but likely conjectures in string theory, something yeah. like that, where like <laughs> no one really cares, but yeah, <laughs> but some they'll, put their, they'll put some effort into it. <laughs> I feel like in those cases though, like the funding politics is just as polarizing as partisan politics in some ways. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, but no, that would be something idealized like that. <laughs> would also argue if you find someone nowadays arguing about string theory, chances are they care a lot about it. So, <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, Maria, thank you for talking to us. This was a lot of fun. Um, oh, thank you, everyone. And uh, I've gotten some messages already.
from people saying that they missed the talk, but they'll, they'll uh, listen to the recording afterwards. So it's nice oh. that this one was recorded. Um, and uh, uh, and at some point in the future, as I said, um, uh, I or someone else will come back to present uh, our work together, which I'm very excited about, and hopefully will be finished sooner rather than later. Yeah. Yes, um, hopefully. So so thank you again. We really appreciate it. And uh, thank you and, guys. Yeah. Nice and I'll to see meet you, you all. Okay. Adios. Bye.